Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 2. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the United States. I hope you got blue skies where you are. The phone number here is 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. Uh, you know what? I, I, I actually want to start with a phone call here, which I rarely ever do right at the top of the hour, but I, I, I've actually got a, a side interest in this phone call before I get to what I wanted to talk about it in large part, because uh, Aaron is calling uh, is a student at a school where my daughter just got her acceptance letter. So Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric, thank you for taking my call. Sure. So my kid um, yesterday got accepted to Kennesaw state. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank um, you. I'm a Jewish student at KSU. Um, it's a good school. Um, I'm actually calling in regards to the anti-Semitism, um, not just here, but campuses all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I wanted to get your opinion on what you think the best way to combat the, this is. You know, I'm noticing an increasing, not just it started anti-Israel, then it became anti-Semitic, but it's also anti-American. A lot of the groups that are, uh, you know, distributing flyers, um, having rallies on campus, that kind of thing, are also, you know, uh, leftist groups and not surprisingly, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, so I think there there are long-term deep things and short-term superficial things. Uh, one of those things is when I was in school, and I'm assuming it's gotten worse, that you got to do all the diversity and equity training. Uh, you got to go through diversity. They, I think universities, particularly given what we're seeing on so many prominent campuses, really should spend a little bit of time on anti-Semitism because what people said was anti-Israel and occupier has turned into just flat-out anti-Semitism at Harvard, at Stanford, at, at Yale, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, at so many schools. I mean, the, they are chanting death to the Jews. Um, I mean, look at the kid at Cornell who said uh, all Jews are guilty. Uh, I, I think there's got to be some level, if you're going to force kids to do diversity training, uh, add an anti-Semitism component. And they'll say, well, add Islamophobia as well. Except Islamophobia, despite what people are saying, is not really as big an issue. No one is marching in the streets with Israeli flags or American flags saying death to the Muslims. But a whole hell of a lot of people are chanting death to the Jews, waving Palestinian flags. The I, other, I couldn't, it, agree. Yeah, I couldn't well, agree more. In fact, um, you know, we, we went, when we were tabling on campus for Israel, the, the conversation started with the protesters that they, they supported Jewish people, just not Zionists. But it quickly delved into, you know, anti-Semitic stereotypes, calling us, you know, fascists, Nazis, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, so the two are intertwined for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the other issue is... Uh, red states, uh, Republican-led states, have got to force their boards of education to change history standards. So uh, we're out of the uh, occupier, occupy, decolonization narratives, which serve as propaganda, not real history, and do a better job of teaching actual history. Uh, you know, just as an example, Aaron, so my wife is doing a Bible study, and they're reading through the books of First and Second Samuel. And she came up to me last night. And she says, how, how do you explain this stuff? She's reading about David uh, marking a line with a rope and, and those on one side were killed and those on one side were saved. She said, they, 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 these civilizations have been doing this for a very long time. 
And one of the points I made to her was that, look, when not to get theological, but this is just stories of the Bible. When, when, when the Israelites went into the promised land, God told them to wipe out everybody in, in many cases. And in very few cases did they actually. And uh, over time, they began, particularly the northern kingdom, began embracing um, pagan rituals and other things and sacrificing to Baal. Uh, But the one thing that set the Israelites apart from every other civilization was when they killed people, they did it as quickly and swiftly as possible. They didn't torture and play with them. Uh, I mean, the the Amalekites, the Amorites, the the, um, Edomites, the, the, the Assyrians, they were brutal to people before killing them. And what we're seeing with Hamas today is that, I mean, the awful horror stories of what they did to people. And there's got to be some level of real historic education that moves beyond occupier narratives, which is just propaganda. And that requires legislative action in Republican states, I think. So. Sure. And, and more, to, more to your point, you know, you mentioned the diversity, uh, diversity in uh, whatever that stuff is, the DEI. Yeah. Um, so actually, you know, KSU amongst like a lot of schools has a whole department for that stuff. But, you know, I haven't heard a word from them about this, but, you know, of course, other, uh, other social issues in the past, like like, um, you know, the BLM stuff, they put out a statement. So, you know. Yeah, every microaggression gets flagged by DEI departments, but actual murders of civilians does not. That should tell you everything. I mean, that's the other yeah, thing is states should the, just be defunding these. Yeah, under the guise of it doesn't affect the students, but I mean, I'd argue anti-Semitism on campus affects students a lot more than, you know, other things that have been uh, flagged, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I got to say, as, as much as it, it may be a problem there, even my alma mater, Mercer, has had a couple of incidents in the last couple of weeks, but it's nothing compared to uh, what some of the Ivy Leagues have had. I mean, at oh, Cornell University, absolutely. marching in the streets, absolutely. chanting uh, Jews commit genocide, genocide the Jews is one of the chants they chant. It, it's absurd and obscene to me that this is happening on college campuses and like the, the president of Harvard and the president of the University of Pennsylvania barely saying anything about it. Yeah, it's because, and I was told, you know, after I filed the complaint that it's because, you know, the the freedom of uh, speech, you know, but as we've learned from, you know, the Trump trial, I guess that doesn't include uh, inciting, uh, as we've learned. And the call, you know, from the river to the sea, if you look at a map of Israel, you know, that's definitely uh, inciting genocide. It is, and, and it's it's. I used to think they that that the white kids in the West chanting "River to Sea" didn't know what they meant. It's very clear now. They know what it means, and they mean what it says. Oh yeah, no, no yeah. doubt. And well, know, I yeah. Go ahead. I I, oh, I, was, I was just going to say um, that you know I the irony is not lost on me that you know the LGBT groups and other groups that are supporting Hamas, you know, uh, we all know that they're not fond of them either. So right. Yeah, the the yeah the amount of people uh, marching in the streets for the Palestinians who would gladly throw them off buildings and stone them to death uh, is is absurd. Look, Aaron, I'll, I'll leave it there. My best to you. Um, I'm, I I don't think my kid's good. She's hoping to get accepted to my alma mater, Mercer. That's where she wants to go to the engineering school. There, we should hopefully find out uh, in the next week or two. Um, so, uh, but larger issue here, particularly uh, if if you're in the state legislature in Georgia. I want you to hear what Aaron just said. He just said 
that the DEI department at Kennesaw State University was willing to issue a statement about Black Lives Matters and George Floyd, but not about the murders of 1,400 people in Israel because they didn't think it affected the students. Neither did George Floyd. But they were willing to issue statements on that and not on what happened in Israel. And now there's rising anti-Semitism even on that campus, and they're still silent. If you're in the legislature in a Republican state, if you're listening, uh, KRMG out in in Oklahoma, one, one of my affiliates in Florida, if you're listening in Texas or Georgia, you within the legislature have the power to abolish the DEI departments at your public institutions, and you should. Wipe them out. They are just festering dens of progressivism, anti-Semitism, and and anti-conservatism. Wipe them out. Defund them. There's no reason Kennesaw State University should have a DEI department. There's no reason the University of Georgia should. There's no reason Texas A&M should. There's no reason FSU or the University of Florida should. Wipe them out. Wipe out the diversity, equity, and inclusion. And while you're at it, Refuse to fund victimization studies, ethnic studies, queer theory, women and genders programs. You should wipe out women and gender theory uh, programs in public institutions. The only thing women and gender studies students learn is how to wear comfortable shoes and be angry all the time. That's it. That's the only thing women and gender studies departments learn how to do. I mean, for God's sakes, back in, back in the 60s and 70s, at least the women's studies were learning how to put on an apron and make a sandwich. Now it's just scowl, scowl. We're going to teach you how to be angry women and see yourself as a victim of everything. Get rid of the gender studies departments. Get rid of the, the black uh, studies departments. Get rid of the queer theory department. Get rid of the DEI. You can do this. After all, you, the legislature of your states, are in charge of the purse strings of the states, and you can say you're not going to fund it, and you can prohibit them from funding it. You're allowed to do that because you are the legislature. You are the Democratic representatives of the people of your state who are tired of these insane left-wing mobs taking over academic institutions and polluting them with this progressive nonsense. Shut them down. Kill the DEI department and kill the ethnic studies departments of your public institutions. Do you know the ethnic studies department of the University of California system issued a letter and cheered on Hamas and their letter, they cheered on what was the uh, Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation, as they called it. I mean, think about that. You've got Jewish students in the ethnic studies departments within the divisions of the University of California, and the professors in charge are cheering on what they call the response to the occupation of Israel, which was a murder of 1,400 innocent people in Israel, some of whom were literally thrown into ovens and baked to death. I No. Well, yeah. Do you know in one house Hamas went in and pulled out the eye of the father, cut off the finger of the son, cut off the foot of the daughter, and cut off the breast of the mother and made them hold those parts while Hamas 
while the Hamas terrorists made themselves food out of the refrigerator of the family, while they sat there bleeding and screaming and crying in pain and ate in front of them and then killed them. And then killed them. You have college campuses where students, professors are cheering that on, justifying it, justifying it, making excuses for it or refusing to believe it's true. If you are a Republican in a Republican state where the Republicans control the governor's mansion and control the legislature and you're not defunding this stuff and fighting this stuff, are you not choosing to allow this to exist? So are you not then choosing to allow the evil to fester and the champions of evil to fester? This becomes on you at some point. You're culpable for this stuff. When the DEI departments, the professors and students of your academic institutions that are funded by taxpayer money are cheering this stuff on, you're you're subsidizing the festering of that evil and you're doing nothing. This at some point becomes on you. You oppose it. You think it's horrible. You're horrified by it. Well, do something about it. If you're in the legislature, you control the purse strings. You can do something about it and you should. Here's the reality for Democrats in Washington. They don't control everything. The Republicans actually have a larger majority in the House than the Democrats have in the Senate which rarely gets noted. The Democrats lost the House in 2022, and they've never really had to give any concessions to Republicans after winning. They don't think they have to, and they think they can fund the government without ever having to cut anything. And the reality financially for the country and the reality for the Democrats is the Republicans expect something in return. They're not going to give the Democrats everything they want, and Democrats are going to have to negotiate. I was on CNN last night with Jake Tapper and pointed out, I think that Mike Johnson, the new speaker, is to the right of Kevin McCarthy, but he's not a, a nihilist or nihilist like some of the Republicans who would shut it all down and, and let it all blow up. He, as speaker, has an obligation to move some things to get them done. And as a result, I think he's going to negotiate, and he'll negotiate in good faith. He's a man of deep faith. He's going to keep his word. He believes in loving his neighbor, but doesn't think the government has to fund that love. Uh, the Democrats, they're going to have to find some concessions to him and to the Republicans. They're going to have to cut something. That's just the reality. They're going to have to cut something. And I would tell the Democrats, uh, you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema may be willing to go along with the Republicans and cut some of the Green New Deal stuff that blew up in Joe Manchin's face. They've got some vulnerabilities there on their own. If you build a Republican-majority coalition in the House and you build a bipartisan-majority coalition in the Senate willing to cut some IRS funding or the Green New Deal funding and the Democrats stand in the way, sure, the media will praise the Democrats and condemn the Republicans and ignore the Democrats who have sided with the Republicans. But it's too hard now to shape that narrative without the public paying attention because the public doesn't trust the media anymore and will go find the truth. And the truth is... You got to cut something for Mike Johnson. You got to cut something, Democrats. Come up with something, make an offer, and cut it. But he's not just going to give you a blank check. Johnson matters. You know, uh, Johnson has more um, goodwill from Republicans than Kevin McCarthy ever did, and he's going to be able to use that. We are less than three weeks from a government shutdown. Less than three weeks from a government shutdown. There are plenty of Republicans, myself included, who'd be fine with a government shutdown. 
Mike Johnson, the speaker, would prefer not to see a government shutdown. He'd prefer to cut a deal. But if the Democrats say you have to give us everything we want and we give you nothing in return, then we're going to have a government shutdown. The Democrats, you, you've got this new dynamic. You don't have Kevin McCarthy. You've got a guy who actually believes in stuff. Kevin McCarthy's own staff said Kevin McCarthy's superpower was that he believed in nothing. Mike Johnson's superpower is he believes in stuff. He's a principled conservative. So you got to do something with him. Whether you want to or not, you're going to have to negotiate to keep the government open. When we come back, I got to talk about Tim Scott. I do. His campaign probably needs to shut down. It pains me to say that, but we need to explore it when we come back. First, I need to tell you about Vision Computers. Vision Computers can build you a laptop or desktop or your office. If you need uh, multiple computers for your office, Vision can handle that as well. And then they can be your tech support. So you get a phone number to call, a special phone number. They answer in 15 seconds or less, and they actually answer your, your questions. If you're having a problem, you can't figure something out, something doesn't work, they can fix it for you, diagnose it over the phone, navigate you how to fix it, show you how to fix it, remote in and help you with email. They can help you with printer support. If you don't have computers from Vision Computers, but you want their help for a small annual fee, you can get their help like that as well. They'll treat you just like your family. Vision Computers, you go to visioncomputers.com. That's the website, visioncomputers.com. Or better yet, call them at 404-COMPUTE. Anywhere nationwide, you can call Vision Computers at 404-COMPUTE. They'll build you your PC, laptop or desktop, and they'll be your tech support for you or your office. You need 50 computers? They'll service all 50 computers and give you the number to give to all 50 people who have them. They're that great, they're that good, they're that responsive, and they build great machines. Visioncomputers.com or 404-COMPUTE. 404-COMPUTE. Call them and tell them I sent you. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to be on the program, happy to have you. As long as it's relevant, makes me look good. <laughs> um, you can text Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. However, let me, now that we're through October and we're actually into November, you know, I help Hungry for a Day, and we haven't done so well fundraising. And David, Huey, and I, we talked, and we really think it's, it's we, we've never done it so early. Uh, last year, in 24 hours, we hit about $200,000. We're struggling to make fifty, And I know it's the times we're in, but I also know it's early and people have been thinking about other stuff. So I just, I do want to encourage you, if you can help, uh, text the word donate to 33777, donate to 33777. So what this is, is Hungry for a Day partners with food pantries around the country to provide a Thanksgiving meal for families in need. So $40 covers a family of four. They'll get a turkey, they'll get sweet potatoes, they'll get uh, rolls, they'll get, uh, I think, either mac and cheese or green beans. Uh, in many cases, the food pantries are going to cook the meals for the families so that those struggling don't have to worry about that as well. In some cases, they're going to give a smoked ham because of the tenement housing where people live. Like in Boston, a lot of the uh, poor people who need help live in those weekly motels and uh, subsidized by the counties, but they don't have kitchens, so they have to rely on food pantries and soup kitchens. So they get a smoked ham because that will hold up better for them than a turkey. Um but they're working around the country to help people who need help at this time of year. And there are a lot more this year than last year. Last year, there were more than the year before. It's just the times we're in. And I know a lot of you are struggling as well. You may need the help and cannot provide the help yourself. 
But if you can, be generous. Uh, if you text DONATE to 33777, I'll send you back the link to ericthanksgiving.com. And you can help Hungry for a Day. They have partnered coast-to-coast with food banks, food pantries, soup kitchens to make sure that in all the states, those in need will have a Thanksgiving meal this year. Uh, it's kind of It makes me sad to think there are people who otherwise couldn't. Um, but if you can't, and I know a lot of you can't, I, I know – um, just the economy sucks, even though by metrics the economy is supposed to be so good. It, it's not. People are really feeling it. But if you can, text donate to 33777. Be as generous as you can, please. $20 will feed two people. It's basically 10 bucks a person. Um, they're really going for $40 because they can cover a turkey and the sides with that $40 for a family of four. Um, just any help is appreciated, though. If you have listened to me for a long time, you know I just adore Tim Scott. I really genuinely like Tim Scott. Um, there's no caveats at all in there. I like Tim Scott. He is a profoundly good person. He's not going to be president of the United States, however, and I think it's probably time for Tim Scott to give it up. And I hate to say that because, you know, so I, I really like Tim Scott. It's like, I don't want to make him mad, but I, I also, I have an obligation to you, my audience, to tell you what I think. And he may disagree with me, but I think it's probably time for him to give it up. Michael Warren is writing in the dispatch. Uh, GOP senators love the South Carolinian, but increasingly don't see how his campaign gets off the ground. In this week's Iowa poll, for example, his net favorability rating among likely caucus goers was 38%, better than Donald Trump's, better than Nikki Haley's, better than Vivek Ramaswamy's. His job over the next 75 days, according to his campaign, is to convince Iowa voters who like him that they should caucus for him. He's got a lot of ground to make up because Trump averages 43 points in the Hawkeye state. As well-liked as Scott is in Iowa, he's arguably even more popular in the Senate. In conversations with the dispatch, a number of his Republican colleagues there were effusive in their praise. To Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Scott is a great guy and a good friend. To Rick Scott, he's a smart guy. Tommy Tuberville of Alabama labels him a good guy, and Pete Ricketts of Nebraska thinks he's a great guy. But while Republican senators love him, Many are beginning gently with plenty of love to suggest that Scott's path to the White House isn't viable. Here's what struck me about Tim Scott when he came to the gathering in Atlanta. One, he wears his faith on his sleeve probably more than anyone other than Mike Pence. He's explicitly a faithful Christian who loves the Lord and loves this country. He has the most optimistic message of any of the candidates running. And his message is that don't tell me America isn't great or good when the descendant of slaves from South Carolina can rise to the U.S. Senate and run for president. This country has its flaws and had its sins and has other sins, but it's not a racist nation. It's a good nation of great people. That is a heck of a message. But what also stood out to me, the number of people in the crowd at the gathering who came up to me in the breaks said how much they loved Tim Scott, but they couldn't vote for him because he's just too nice. 
some of them viewed him, for lack of a better word, as too precious to run for president. That we we this guy is is too much of an optimist and good, and we don't want him jaded in a presidential run. We we want to protect him. Others just thought uh, we need someone who can slit throats, and he's not that man at this moment. But in all of them, it was he's too nice. He's too nice. And that's kind of a damning indictment on American political culture that you have a guy that you think is, oh, he's too nice to run for president. I thought that's the guy you wanted to run for president. That should be the guy you want. You want a, a, a nice guy who loves Jesus to run for president. That's what you all say you want. And then you encounter Tim Scott. You're like, I might be too nice. He's not going to be able to stick it to him. He's, he's got the Mitt Romney problem. I think it's time for Tim Scott to suspend his campaign. I don't like saying that because I like him. And there was a moment he started going up in Iowa in the polling early on when his message seemed to translate, but it got overshadowed by other events and he hasn't been able to recapture momentum. You know, it's it's fair to say Ron DeSantis hasn't recaptured momentum either. The wind is completely out of Ron DeSantis' sails, and his campaign gets very upset with me for saying that, and the people who love him get upset with me for saying that, but he has shown no upward momentum anywhere in a while. But he's still polling in double digits, and Tim Scott never will. DeSantis has a better shot at getting wind back in his sails than Tim Scott does. Here's my thinking on the 2024 Republican primary. It's Donald Trump's to lose, and he might lose it. Events change things. A lightning bolt, a bad jury verdict, a health issue, he's old, could change things. God could intervene, or a judge could intervene, or health could intervene, bankruptcy could intervene. External forces at this point are the only thing that will stop Trump, though. Otherwise, it's going to be the Republican nominee. The only other viable candidates are Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is in double digits. Nikki Haley is surging into double digits. She's now in second place uh, behind Trump in New Hampshire. She's now in second place behind Trump in South Carolina. She's starting to erode Ron DeSantis's lead. She has taken out Tim Scott in their home state. He's from South Carolina as well. And everywhere Nikki Haley's on the ballot, Tim Scott's on the ballot, and she's outpacing him. Ron DeSantis still is ahead of Nikki Haley in Iowa in the polling averages, but she's eating into that as well. But here's, in my mind, you can disagree with me, but this is how I see it. I love Nikki Haley as well. Nikki Haley's, I've been known her longer than any of these people running other than Mike Pence. She and her husband are good friends. My daughter and I went to her campaign launch. I like Nikki Haley. Uh, when Mike Pence, when the dust settles on his departure, I suspect Nikki Haley gets his voters. And that's going to put her above DeSantis in some places. Maybe not, but I, I, I think she probably will. But Mike Pence didn't have significant voters, which is why he's dropping out. I think DeSantis's voters are more likely to go to Donald Trump than anyone else in the race. Therefore, Nikki Haley builds a coalition of non-Trump voters in the GOP, and DeSantis builds a coalition of Trump and non-Trump voters in the GOP, which makes DeSantis more viable as the nominee than Haley because 
Many of DeSantis's voters would go to Trump if he dropped out. Many of Haley's supporters would go to someone, including DeSantis. If she dropped out, they wouldn't go to Trump. That gives DeSantis an advantage. But right now, neither of them benefit the other from dropping out, and neither of them benefit the other from staying in. It's kind of status quo. It's stagnant. And Donald Trump leads until external events change things, except if everybody does get out and they don't have to share a stage with Chris Christie and they don't have to share a stage with Tim Scott or Asa Hutchinson or Doug Burgum, I mean, let's be honest, Ramaswamy's not going anywhere. His job is to be Trump's turd in the punch bowl in the primary and uh, go after anyone who dares to go after Donald Trump. That's his whole He's not. You need to understand Vivek Ramaswamy is not running to win the presidency. Vivek Ramaswamy is running to suck up to Donald Trump. That's it. He has no viable path to the nomination, but thinks he can block other people from getting the nomination and benefit Trump. And that's what he's doing. That's why he's doing it. Vivek shouldn't be on the debate stage, but he's pulling high enough because of naive people that he is. So that'll leave a debate stage with him and Haley and DeSantis. Trump won't show up. And that's a debate worth having. Watching uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley eviscerate Vivek Ramaswamy would be must-see TV. Watching them go after each other, not so much. You take out uh, Ramaswamy, who, by the way, the funniest part of all the polling is that Ramaswamy's negatives have gone up more than all other candidates combined in like a month. Like 60-some-odd percent of the GOP at this point says they would never, ever, ever vote for that guy, which is brilliant. But more than that won't vote for Tim Scott. Tim Scott doesn't have a path. His super PAC has suspended its ad campaign. His campaign's struggling, pulling in the money. I like Tim Scott so much, I don't like being honest. Because I don't want to hurt his feelings. He gave it his all. He's a good guy. But he needs to go the path of Mike Pence and step aside. He's not going to be able to go in on Iowa and visit all 99 counties and, and have an impact. There are too many external forces that are competing against him. He's got too many other candidates competing against him. He's got too many other headlines competing against him. He's a nice guy. He's going back to Iowa. He's going to do a series of town halls. He's going to do roundtables. He's going to jumpstart his campaign. Iowa's socially conservative. There are a lot of Christians. He's going all in. But only 7% of respondents in the Ann Selzer poll this week, the gold standard for Iowa polling, list him as first choice. Second choice is what matters. Second choice is what matters. But in second choice, it doesn't help him in second choice either. He's sixth in the polling average in New Hampshire, fourth in the polling average in South Carolina. Tim Scott needs to step aside in the race. This is a three-way race between Trump, DeSantis, and Haley at this point, and barely DeSantis and Haley, frankly, when you look at the polling for Trump. But the only way to really shake up the dynamic of the race is for the other people to go on and step out because the dynamic of the race is not going to shape up or shake up when that many people are sharing the stage together. And it's just hard to tell a guy you like that much, whose message you like that much, that there is no viable path forward for him in the race but I've done this a long enough time. I see the way it's shaping up. There's not a viable path for him to be the presidential candidate. But there are viable paths 
if the race consolidates for other people not named Trump. And I think it's time for Tim Scott to clear the field along with Mike Pence and let the race shake up and consolidate with their departures. Asa Hutchinson and Doug Burgum, they're not relieving factors. But I love Tim Scott. Godspeed to Tim Scott. But it's time to end that campaign for president. That's just the cold, hard truth. We're at that point. It's November. The caucuses are two months away. It's Donald Trump's to lose. He might lose because of external events, but at this point, it looks like he can win. The race just needs to consolidate to see. Now, I need to tell you about Patriot Mobile. They are around the country funding the conservative movement, and they do a great job of it. As their profits grow, their giving grows to grow their profits. They need your business, and all you have to do is go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Take your cell phone service to Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile will provide you guaranteed great service using the same cell towers you are already using. And then Patriot Mobile funds the causes you care about. They fund the Second Amendment cause. They fund the pro-life cause. They fund conservative parents battling wokes on school boards. Patriot Mobile, they are fantastic people, good Christian conservatives. They've gotten so big and so good at giving money to the right causes and candidates. Left-wing publications attack them relentlessly. And in the meantime, their customers are happy using the same cell towers they probably were using ahead of time. You can take your existing phone number to Patriot Mobile or get a brand new one from them. If you have an unlocked cell phone not subsidized by carrier, you can take that as well. They can work with it. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric or 972-PATRIOT to have 100% U.S.-based customer service. So if you call them at 972-PATRIOT, you'll talk to someone in the USA. If you tell them I sent you, you get free activation with my name. And then as their profits grow, their giving to the conservative causes grow. It's a great way to be a part of the conservative movement and fund it without you having to do anything other than just move your cell phone service. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric or 972-PATRIOT. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number 877-973-7425. I got to find, uh, what is, how old is Anthony Blinken? Anthony Blinken is 61 years old. So he got married, uh, in two. 2001, 2002, uh, they've got two children. Um, one was born, a son from 2019, daughter from 20. Okay, so this is, I, it's, so I, I don't, guys who, I don't know. So he's about a decade older than his wife. They, they got married and now they've got, he's got a young son from 2019. I mean, they're good, good progressive family. I just think it's very weird, and I don't mean it disrespectfully. Your kid dressed up as uh, Zelensky for the White House Halloween. Now, can, can you just just answer me this question? How many of you have a kid that would choose uh, Zelensky over Spider-Man? My guess is none. And I'm not saying it wasn't the kid's choice. Maybe the kid really wanted to go as Zelensky. But when you're the son of the Secretary of State, does anyone else think that dad pushed him to go as Zelensky to make some sort of statement at the White House? Does he, anybody else think that maybe kid might have wanted to go as Spider-Man and dad says, nope, you're putting on the green T-shirt and going as Zelensky 
Or if he did, is it like the people who tell their kids we're all going to die from global warming and your kid's obsessed because dad's obsessed with it? I just, I don't know.